From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When you hear back to school, you might think about shopping for school supplies and maybe a new pair of tennis shoes. But back-to-school preparation should also include updating immunizations, sports physicals, and even a checkup on your child's mental health. Today on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. When you get out of baby dumb, it sometimes is a little bit tempting to not have your kid to be seen because there's not that structure of every few months where you're being seen during infancy. Also on the program, we'll discuss HPV-related throat cancers. And how medical marijuana is being used to treat some conditions and symptoms. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It is August, and that means it's time for parents and their children to start thinking about heading back to school. I'm daydreaming daydreaming about it right now. (laughs) Well, depending on the age of your kids, sending them back to school could involve some more immunizations, sports physicals, or just a good time to check in on your child's overall health and well-being. Here to discuss getting ready to head back to school is Mayo Clinic Family Medicine physician, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cozine. It's great to see you. It's always great to be here. Thanks again for inviting me. So you still like being a family doctor? It's still going great. Uh, and do you uh, sort of specialize in treating kids? So the advantage of family medicine is we treat everybody. So we see kids, babies, adults, old people many of whom are going back to school. We're trying to take care of the whole family, which I think is really advantageous when we're talking about something like overall kid health. For the older child, what sort of immunizations do they need, let's say, when they're in grade school or middle school? So when you get out of baby dumb, it sometimes is a little bit tempting to not have your kid to be seen because there's not that structure of every few months where you're being seen during infancy. Um, In the older kid, there's standard immunizations before kindergarten, and then the next set of routine immunizations, other than annual flu shots, are at about age 11. Um, The HPV immunization can be given as early as age 9, which is when I recommend doing that shot. Uh, HPV is human papillomavirus, which is the virus that causes cervical cancer and genital warts. And we know more and more head and neck cancers are also related to HPV. Sexually transmitted. Correct. Which is the reason you want to give it so young. Precisely. So, Well, see, that's a confusion. I was just going to say, because people then say, well, I don't... My nine-year-old's not sexually active. People get pretty uncomfortable when you start talking about sex with nine-year-olds. But I tell people this is not about sexual activity. This is actually a cancer immunization. Mm -hmm. And you could think about it similarly to hepatitis B, which is also a cancer immunization. Hepatitis B causes hepatocellular carcinoma. HPV causes other cancers. It's very effective. It works. And so um, we know that if you catch kids before they've had any sort of sexual activity, plus they also have a better immune response the younger they are. So when this immunization was first released, it was a three-shot series. And now um, in 2017, it was made to a two-part series if you get it before age 15. So those kiddos that are between 9 and 15 amount a beautiful immune response. They only need two shots. That's a major selling point. For life. Correct. Never need a booster shot no or booster. anything. Okay. Boys and, and girls. Boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And it prevents cervical cancer uh, in women, prevents genital warts, and prevents... Uh, herpes virus-related cancers of the mouth and throat. Correct. It's uh, against the most virulent strains, the strongest strains, which are HPV 16 and 18. 
among others. Let's talk about other things that school-age kids, the younger kids, need to have done. And the one I've got at the top of my list of to-do is uh, getting eyes checked. So what about eyes and ears? How often do you need to get that checked? So it's really useful to have those checked, certainly if there's a problem. But otherwise, we do routine screenings at well-child visits. That's also part of routine screening at, for example, preschool screening, depending on your school district. And annually, it's a pretty good idea to make sure you're at least touching base. Can my kid see? Is my kid acting out because they can't actually see the board at school? And sometimes they don't know. They really don't know that. They don't recognize Kids that get used they to not can't seeing. see. Right. Mm-hmm. So what do you recommend in general? Uh, what sort of regimen, what sort of schedule that should parents follow for, for their kids? How often should they really see you, assuming that they're healthy? Yeah, so a lot of this comes from um, guidelines put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics, and there's a pretty standard well-child uh, routine. So I'll not talk about infancy, but kind of the school-age kid, kindergarten, 7, 9, 11, 13. That matches up pretty well with the standard uh, sports physical routine, and then um, certainly before college. We were talking about immunizations around 11, and in the one you talked about with was HPV. Are there others that there you are. ought to get so at 11? There are. So TDAP, which is tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, is given at age 11. Before that, you get the DTAP, which is a different formulation of the diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis vaccine. So you get that at 11 and then um, as an adult. And then the other immunization at age 11 is MCV, which is meningococcal. Okay, and that's uh, what the college kids need also? Correct, and so the booster for that is given as early as age as age 16, as yeah. a teenager, later. Yeah. And um, my nurses are really, really good at reminding me about that. <laughs> so there hasn't been a meningitis outbreak for, for quite some time, and this is uh, a vaccine against bacterial meningitis, isn't it? Or Correct. Is it, yeah, Correct. Not, not viral. You could right. still get viral meningitis. Correct. Um, why uh, on college campuses, other than the fact that people are living relatively close together? Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it's a bad, it's potentially lethal. It's potentially lethal. So we know that meningitis tends to be in places where there are groups of people living together. So most, most people who have been to medical school can quote that the incidence of meningitis was, you know, 10% of Army recruits are colonized with meningitis. And the example mm-hmm. is that people who are clustered together are more likely to be spreading that illness. So college kids going off to the dorms, that's a high-yield group of people to immunize against this, this illness. What about hygiene? What do you tell uh, parents and, and kids about hygiene when it comes to uh, helping prevent colds and flu? Usually I kind of see the parent waving across the room like, can, can you get them to shower? Can you tell them? So I usually say something like, I think it would be a really great idea to take a shower every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just try to be really non-judgmental about it and mm-hmm. say, in, in most cases, taking a shower every day is good because as you start to be an adult, you sweat like an adult, and sometimes you sweat and you smell like an adult. <laughs> those fifth graders. What about, yeah. Oh, uh, those fifth graders. <laughs> coughing and hand hygiene. Do you talk to them about that? Oh, I don't have to talk to them about that because at school they talk about dabbing, so they cough right into the, the arm. <laughs> But cough into the shoulder. Do you know what that means, Dr. Shabbing? We'll talk about it afterwards. I learned from my kindergartner. That's right. (laughs) Is that right? Where you cough into your elbow? Is that what it is? It's a dance move. Yeah. yeah. Dabbing? But but yeah, cough into the elbow. So most daycares and schools are doing a beautiful job of that. But yeah, we try not to cough into the hands. Okay, here's the question that I've got because it hurts me to watch my children. Well, not the first few days, but when you've got that backpack so loaded down, what is that figure for how heavy a backpack can be? I think it's somewhere, I couldn't, I, I'm not exactly sure of the exact amount, but if you see your kindergartner who looks like they're tipping over, that is too heavy. So, you know, certainly less than 10 pounds mm-hmm. would be maximal. Um, and 
it shouldn't be digging into the shoulders and think about your kid is not a pack mule. So encourage them perhaps to do a little bit of uh, efficiency of packing. We're going to talk about teenagers and college kids a little bit uh, after the break, but I just want to know for the little bitties, yeah. mine are older, yours are younger. Do you, any of yours have scared, are they scared to go to school? Is there some trepidation there? And there what can parents is. do? It's really interesting. You know, my kids are going into second grade and going into kindergarten. And now that I've been through this kindergarten transition coming up for the second time, they're nervous about it. They're not quite sure what to expect. My little guy who is going into kindergarten says, I'm ready. I'm ready to, to be in school. Mm-hmm. But he's also um, kind of scared. And so I, I talk to parents about that, too. You know, anytime there's a life transition, that's a stressful event. That goes for a kid going from preschool to kindergarten. Maybe it's their first school experience for a kid going to middle school, which is another life transition, and heading off to college. I think just talking to kids about um, it's normal to feel concerned about what something is new and unexpected and any kid and anybody who's had a baby knows that human beings like routine and so when your routine is a little bit upended that's stressful and so acknowledging that sometimes the way a five-year-old manages stress is by acting kind of badly a teenager might do the same thing and say are they acting out because sport for them or is there something else going on All right, we're talking about uh, kids and going back to school with family physician Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Time for a short break, but when we come back, we've got more to talk about. This time, teenagers. You got a couple, (laughs) huh? (laughs) Yeah, both physical and mental health checkups for teens. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae, and I just talked Dr. Shives how to dab. All right, th- that's really, um, then that helps when you should cough. You should dab when you cough. Yeah, no way that's what I said. All right, Dr. Cozine, let's talk about teenagers. Let's talk about your teenagers. Well, one of the things that's funny is that we were talking about well-child visits. Mm-hmm. And so it's nine, nine years old and 11 years old. When you go and set up that 11-year-old one, they do not want you to call it a well-child visit. They're like, Mom, do we really have to? So okay. I started saying, wild-child visit, and that makes them that. happy. That's great. <laughs> So do you see teenagers just giving you the I'm not going to say a word and sit here thing? or They definitely do that. And uh, my policy is that once a kid is 12 or 13, I absolutely kick the parents out of the room. Sometimes they don't want to say anything to me alone either, but that gives them an opportunity to talk to something that they might not be super excited to discuss with their moms and dads. And I always talk about um, drugs, alcohol, sex, all the stuff that makes adults really uncomfortable. And do they? Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. They do. Yeah, That's they're good. they're really. It's pretty surprising. I think um, I, I'm always tempted to sort of underestimate what somebody's going to tell me, but pretty much they just start talking. One okay, of the things. No, let me just ask. So I got this important question. So when the parents, when you kick the parents yeah. out of the room, what's the most common question that a teenager asks? There, <laughs> there's not a most common. Usually, I'm kind of trying to goad them along. Yeah. Okay. And they're just you know, more I likely say to answer. Like condoms, and they turn purple <laughs> but it's it's at least they're hearing they're hearing about the really importance of taking care of yourself and respecting yourself one of the things that also happens when you said uh, kids to wild child yeah. visits is um, a depression screener right. and when what age do you does Mayo Clinic start doing that with their patients we start routinely at the 13 year well visit and that's with the with a, a standardized tool called the PHQ 9m 
which is a patient health questionnaire, which is a standardized depression screen. The M stands for modified, then it's been validated for use in teenagers. It's a really great tool to help us just get an idea about whether or not a teen is struggling with their mood. And do kids respond to that? I mean, if they have an, a score on that PHQ-9 that makes you concerned, you know, do they it, respond? They do respond really well to it because usually when they're coming in and they're they're answering those questions, it's an opportunity uh, for them to really express how much they might be suffering. And um, it's not always something that we pick up just on a well visit, mm-hmm. but it's a great opportunity for us to talk about it. And I use that uh, that question as the, or the, the the scale as kind of an opportunity to say, hey, I noticed that you answered this question where you feel like you've kind of been a failure to yourself. What do you mean by that? And it gives me kind of an entree to the conversation. When you see a, uh, a teenager for a uh, checkup or routine visit, are there any tests that you get routinely, any blood tests or chest x-ray or anything like that? So uh, that depends a little bit, uh, interestingly, on the type of insurance for our patients who are on state insurance, for example, Medicare, there are, Medicaid rather. There are specific tests that need to be done, for example, a hemoglobin in a menstruating teenager that are required to be done for insurance reimbursement purposes. Um, in general, there's not, um, I often will get a lipid panel once in a teenager to kind of see where they uh, end up. And what's um, on the lipid panel? Uh, cholesterol screening, okay. thank you, yeah. And um, uh, chlamydia screening in, um, in teens. Men and women? It's and recommended in women only, but uh, offered to boys as well, to girls. It's a sexual, sexually transmitted Correct. disease that's Correct. asymptomatic. Correct. Okay, so men, do- men are usually symptomatic. Women aren't. It can be a threat to future fertility, which is why we tend to go after that as a screening opportunity. And how do you do the screening? It actually can be done via urine, which is how I tend to do the chlamydia screening in a teenager uh, because they don't always need a genitalia exam or a pelvic exam. And it can also be done with an endocervical swab, which is a swab inside the cervix. But kind of getting, you know, back when when I was a teenager, it was recommended that you start having pap smears within one year of having sex. Those guidelines have changed really quite a bit. And so now we recommend first pap smear at age 21. So that's also an opportunity for me to say to a teenager, hey, let's talk about sexual health. Let's talk about birth control. But I don't necessarily need to do a full pelvic exam. And you're not going to have to have a pap smear um, as sort of a a carrot to get them to um, to do the birth control. We don't have to do that yet. Right. <laughs> okay, but if you've had the H- HPV vaccine, yeah. the chances that you're going to get cervical cancer are Those rates are slim- plummeting. Yeah. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing to see that the rates of cervical dysplasia are much, much lower. So do you still need, a, if you've had the HPV vaccine, Correct. still so, need Correct. So, yeah, at this smear? point, I think it'll be really interesting over the next 10 to 20 years to see what happens with the rates of HPV immunization and how that changes the, the cervical cancer screening guidelines. But for now, age 21 every three years in your 20s, and then those guidelines change once you're 30. But yeah, I'm, Tell us about sports physicals. Well, I've got that? on my list here sports physicals, but I also just want to know for kids that are active. I mean, because when the little ones are playing soccer, that's one thing, but when they get to be teenagers, um, you do have to do a sports physical before you can play sports in most states, but right. even being healthy enough to do sports is something of concern as well. Right. And so the sports physical, again, is a great chance for us to talk about family history, um, talk about questions that they maybe haven't ever thought about. So cardiovascular risk factors, have they ever fainted? Have there's What's the family history of asthma? And uh, a lot of states, uh, I can speak 
mainly just in Minnesota, have a standardized form that they ask the kids to fill out beforehand. And then that also helps with the conversation about what do we need to potentially be worried about here. And then, you know, the vast majority of kids don't need any sort of intervention based on the, the sports physical. But um, it's a great chance to check in with those teenagers who otherwise might not come in. Well, no question about it. The well-child visits are uh, important, and you've suggested that uh, biannually, every other year, yeah. you get a wild uh, well-child visit. Wild child. Yeah, a wild, wild child, child mm-hmm. visit, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And the immunizations are right. uh, important, and particularly the human papillomavirus. Right. And a big plug for influenza annually. I know in our school district here, they're doing it at school, which is super mm-hmm. convenient. I think we should also talk about, just briefly, although the teenager stuff kind of bre- uh, breaches over into college kids, mm-hmm. is there, are there other things besides the immunizations that college kids, um, parents should be thinking about before they send their kids off to college? One of my main spiels with the college kids is talking about binge drinking and uh, safe behaviors and um, making sure that you are in safe situations. Uh, I think that a conversation I'm not that great at yet is discussing social media use in teenagers, and I'm really trying to refine that. You know, I'm not very old, and a lot of this is still pretty foreign to me, (laughs) and thinking about what you might snap or what you might WhatsApp, or I don't even know what all the different things are. You know what you might snap? A dab. Yeah, you, you might snap, snap a dab, Tom. Right, exactly. And, <laughs> i got to be careful. Um, and so, so one, part of the thing that I talk about is, you know, like, it's probably not a good idea to send naked pictures of yourself to anybody. And people kind of roll their eyes at me, but I say, you know, look, I'm a mom. I really want you to be safe and, and taking care of yourself and um, and being in positive relationships. It's a tricky right. business because that brain hasn't finished developing, but there's a lot of binge drinking or any of those yeah, things. exactly, that- exactly can make a big difference in your, the rest of your life. But also I point out to students who are headed off to college or elsewhere what their resources might be. You know, a lot of college campuses have free walks home, free rides home, um, these really important safety tools to help kind of facilitate those good decisions. Yeah, well, you know, when you get to be my age, you don't, you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> sending, can you imagine it, it, my when I grew up sending a naked picture to your girlfriend? I mean, really... <laughs> It's true, Tom. I don't think I should be doing it now. No, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me that doesn't happen. <laughs> no. <laughs> we're going to just, oh, look it, we're out of time. <laughs> Thank goodness. All right, but we've got got it covered. Back to school for kids with family medicine physician, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks again. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss HPV-related throat cancer and how medical marijuana is used to treat disease symptoms and pain. Want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out more than 300 Mayo Clinic Radio segments now available on YouTube. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Here's some good news about the fight against breast cancer. A Mayo Clinic research team has identified specific genes associated with an increased risk for developing triple negative breast cancer. Triple negative breast cancer is an aggressive type of cancer that cannot be treated using targeted therapies. It accounts for 15% of breast cancer in the Caucasian population and 35% in the African American population. It's also associated with a high risk of recurrence. The researchers say their findings provide the basis for better risk management.
Now, genetic testing, which evaluates inherited genetic changes that increase the risk of certain cancers, has helped identify women at increased risk of breast cancer. But the researchers say it's been more difficult to identify women at elevated risk of triple negative breast cancer because only inherited mutations in the gene BRCA1 have been linked to this subtype of breast cancer. The researchers say these findings will enable expanded genetic testing to identify women at risk for triple negative breast cancer and may potentially lead to better prevention strategies. They say the new findings also may lead to revisions to the National Comprehensive Cancer Network screening guidelines. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, HPV, or human papillomavirus, is the single biggest cause of cervical cancer in the U.S., but it's also a common cause of cancer of the mouth and the throat. Now, the pap smear, along with a test for HPV, which can be done at the same time as the pap smear, both of those have reduced the number of cases of cervical cancer. But rates of oral cancer, cancers of the mouth and throat, are growing. In an effort to change that, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center joined 69 other National Cancer Institute centers in calling for increased HPV vaccination and screening to eliminate HPV-related cancers. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic otolaryngologist, that's ear, nose, and throat specialist, and head and neck surgeon, Dr. Eric Moore. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Moore. Thank you for having me on, Trace. Dr. Moore, good, good to have you on the program, especially to talk about HPV, because it is ubiquitous. I mean, it's, it's almost everywhere, and some have said that it's as common a virus as the one that causes the common cold. Yes, that's right. So uh, almost everybody who's alive and out in the world in the United States gets exposed to some form of HPV at some point in their lifetime, and they may never know it. They may not have a lot of symptoms from it. They may clear it. They may get something like a wart or papilloma, or in the very most unfortunate cases, it may be one of the high-risk HPV types that actually can cause cancer. Unlike a cold, though, this is a virus that can cause cancer. Right. So there are certain strains of the HPV virus. There are over 100 strains of the HPV virus that we call high-risk type HPV virus, and those have actually been uh, discovered as cancer-causing types of viruses. And the one that we hear about the most, of course, is cancer of the cervix. But uh, we also now know that it's a fairly common cause of cancer of the throat and the mouth. So how did that all happen? So uh, many years ago, we were seeing some patients with throat cancer. And throat is sort of a, a generic term. And the specific area of the throat is the tonsils on the sides of the throat or the tonsil tissue on the back of the uh, tongue people would develop cancers in this area, and they wouldn't behave like the typical patient. They wouldn't look like the typical patient that we think of as a throat cancer patient. And by that, I mean many throat cancers are the result of chronic long-term tobacco and alcohol exposure. But we would see some patients who didn't have a long history of tobacco and alcohol exposure develop the same cancer of their tonsil or tongue. And surprisingly, those patients would behave, their cancer would behave in a much more agreeable fashion to treatment. They would have a much higher survival with the same treatment that we were giving to all patients with tonsil and tongue-based cancer. And eventually, as we delved into that cancer more, 
did more studies on the biopsy specimens, looked into the patients more, it was found that those patients had a very similar cancer in cell type to cervical cancer, mm. and eventually it's discovered that those cancers also were mediated by papillomavirus. I guess... It- you probably should tell us how you think they got these cancers. Yeah, so so papillomavirus is a sexually transmitted disease, and orogenital sexual contact is the proposed mode of transmission of human papillomavirus in the throat. Both men and women get this. Correct. But more men than women? More or? men than women. And do we know why? Probably because of... Um, probably because of sexual practices, and um, probably because of chronic infections in the cervix and then oral sexual contact with that leads to transmission to the throat. So the number of HPV-related cancers of the throat, mouth, are on the rise. Is it being discovered more? Right. So great question. So when you have, when you see a cancer that's increasing in incidence, is it because now we know where to look for it? Mm-hmm. Now we know what to test? Or is it actually changing in incidence? But that question has been pretty definitively answered. This cancer is actually on the rise. That's an unusual thing with cancer. Most of the cancers that we treat are now on the decline because of better preventative health and better awareness of things that cause cancer. But this cancer is one of the few cancers that we still that we see in the human body that's increasing in incidence every year. So Five years ago, twelve to thirteen thousand people in the United States had HPV-related oropharynx cancer. This year. 20,000 people in the United States have HPV-related oropharynx cancer. It's estimated to continue to rise throughout the next decade. Is it because the virus has changed or because our immunity has changed? We, The leading theory, uh, and these are just theories, mm-hmm. it's very hard to go back and say what happened 10, 15, 20 years ago that led to this. We think it was because of some changes in sexual practices. It's possible that the virus really? has become more virulent, the virus has transformed, the virus has become more aggressive at, at, at forming cancers. We don't think anything in the detection has really changed all that much. It's thought to be a downstream effect of maybe changes in sexual practices that happened 20, 30 years ago or more. Wow. Can you tell uh, when you biopsy one of these cancers that it is caused by HPV? We can. So there there are both very in-depth tests and also some very quick tests that can be done uh, that can determine the relationship to HPV. And right now, when we see a tonsil or tongue-based cancer, we immediately have the pathologist stain it with a particular stain that gives us a, a very, very good idea that it's related to HPV. And the reason we do that is because the treatments have actually become different for HPV-related cancers. They behave so much better to a lot of the treatment that we give that it's important for us to know, and it's included in the staging system. We classify the cancer of whether it's HPV-related or not. And what is the usual treatment? The usual treatment is some combination of removal of the tissue and radiation therapy or radiation therapy and chemotherapy. And this is another, this is another interesting thing about this particular cancer. We started to realize that these tumors, uh, I'll back up a little bit, the, the typical head and neck cancer, squamous cell carcinoma, that's not HPV related, we throw all the treatments we have at it, and still the treatment success rate and cure rate is less than 60% for really? many of these cancers. But people with HPV-related cancer, we throw the treatments that we have for it, and their cure rate is upwards of 90 to 95%. So we're also not only in the era of detecting the tumor and making some suggestions on the treatment, we're in the era of changing the treatment for it, and we're trying to de-intensify the treatment. 
A lot of cancer treatment is tough, and so we're trying to sort of curtail some of our treatment to decrease the long-term side effects because it behaves better. Is surgery always part of the treatment regimen? Uh, no. And so um, the tumor responds well to radiation therapy and chemotherapy. It responds well to surgical therapy with or without radiation therapy, depending on the stage. And so we're still uh, actually doing trials to try to figure out what is the best treatment and what gives people the fewest side effects but still has a high cure rate. Right now here we do a lot of surgical therapy to remove the tumor from the tonsil and remove some of the lymph nodes because we found that we can decrease quite a bit the radiotherapy that we give after that the and still achieve yeah. a high cure mm-hmm. rate. And so that's our typical treatment for it right now. All right, I guess the big issue, the one thing we want to talk about, be sure we talk about, is how to prevent this because even though the cure rate is very good, it's something you don't want to get, and there is a way to prevent it. Well, yes. there are several ways to prevent it. There are several ways to prevent it, and, and so it's a sexually transmitted disease, and so, so people think, well, abstinence, careful sexual practices will play a role, but that's a lot harder to control, and it's a lot harder to control for anybody but yourself, and so the, the, the best treatment, we think, is we have a vaccine for this virus that's very effective. And if you can vaccinate against the virus effectively, then you shouldn't develop the long-term infection, and then you actually have a vaccination that works against a cancer, which is very unique. So we recommend that people receive the vaccine before they've been exposed to the virus, so fairly early in life before before they have any chance of being exposed to a sexually transmitted disease, and then pre- hopefully protect themselves lifelong, not only from throat cancer related to HPV, cervical cancer related to HPV. There are other cancers related to HPV, and uh, the virus protects against the high-risk strains of HPV. So if you're a parent out there, you really ought to have your child vaccinated because, as Dr. Bob Jacobson, pediatrician, has told us before, it's not just a vaccine against HPV. It's a cancer vaccine, right. and it can, and can prevent it. Right. Dr. Eric Moore, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, I appreciate being on the show. Thank you. We've been talking about HPV-related mouth and throat cancer with a Mayo Clinic expert, head and neck surgeon, Dr. Eric Moore. Thanks again. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, how medical marijuana is used to treat disease symptoms and pain. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Recently, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved a form of medical marijuana for the treatment of seizures associated with two rare and severe forms of epilepsy. And it really seems like we hear more and more about people using marijuana to treat all sorts of medical problems and to help overcome the side effects of some traditional medical treatments. 30 states and the District of Columbia currently have laws legalizing medical marijuana in some form. Here to discuss is internal medicine specialist and addiction expert, Dr. John Ebert. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Ebert. It's great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Dr. Ebert, thanks for coming. So, medical marijuana, legitimate for medical use? Since we last spoke about this, uh, the National Academies of Science came out with a report. And that report essentially summarizes all the available medical literature looking at the efficacy or the effectiveness of it and the safety of medical cannabis. And what they found was that it is very effective for three specific conditions. Um, And one of them is uh, spasticity. 
The other one is chronic pain. What was that first one? So spasticity, so muscle spasms. So some people that have spinal cord injuries or some people who have multiple sclerosis can have incredibly painful spasticity. The muscles spontaneously spasm, very painful. It's like a Charlie horse, but constantly. Okay. Right. Um, It's effective for that. Uh, It's effective for nausea, and it's effective for chronic pain and specifically uh, neuropathic pain or pain that comes from a nerve. So what's interesting about their findings is they didn't have a lot of data that actually supported that it was truly effective for the indication that the new drug approved by the FDA is indicated for, which is, which is epilepsy or these severe forms of epilepsy. Um, there is some existing data, but, but they didn't have a lot. Um, I think it's important uh, for patients uh, who are interested to, to, to are interested in, in exploring this as a methodology to talk to their clinicians and, and, and really ask the question, would it seem like the, the condition that I have might be effectively treated by medical cannabis? And those clinicians, I think, need to have that information or there is a, that information is available um, on the Internet and can be searched and can be learned so that they can share that with their patients. Is there some science behind it? Do you know why it works? Yeah, so uh, there's been uh, lots of science in the space, uh, which has somewhat been impeded by the fact that under federal law, medical cannabis is illegal. Um, so there's no research. So there is, there has been research. Okay. Um, you can actually, uh, and there has and is ongoing research. Okay. So it, it is possible to have approval. Uh, to do research with medical cannabis. So there's, there's research suggesting that is effective for these conditions. So why, why does it work? Um, well, what's interesting about, uh, so I, I, I certify patients uh, for medical cannabis. And when I speak with these patients, um, a lot of them are interested in medical cannabis because nothing else really seems to have worked. And most of the patients that I've certified have been for chronic pain. They say, I want to try something new, and I say it might be effective for pain. Um, and one of the things that they, they, they really struggle with is some of those preconceived notions about what it is to, to smoke pot, that people traditionally smoke pot, right. and what it is to use medical cannabis. Very different experiences. So if someone smoked a medical or a marijuana cigarette for non-medicinal purposes, you get 104 different chemicals in there. Uh, states like Minnesota that we are in now have actually limited their program to two of those chemicals. So of the 104 possible chemicals that you get when you smoke a joint, if you will, you only get two of them in Minnesota, and those two are tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the, the molecule that gets people high when they smoke, and cannabidiol. Now, we think that the cannabidiol has some very interesting and important therapeutic properties. Uh, it doesn't work like t- tetrahydrocannabinol, but it can actually um, help with pain as an anti-inflammatory. It can actually help with pain to reduce nerve transmission, which is how it might be working for seizures and epilepsy. That new medication approved by the FDA is basically just pure CBD or cannabidiol. And most of the states have that as one of the molecules that you can get when you are, when you're subscribed or you're approved for medical marijuana in your state. So in the state of Minnesota, uh, the use of, of marijuana is illegal, but it, it is legal for medical purposes. Is that right? So, so it's a great question. So under federal law, um, it is a schedule one 
anything derived from cannabis sativa, which is the parent plant for cannabis sativa and cannabis indica, the two main types of of, of, of plants we think about as being the source for uh, cannabis. Cannab- any derivative of cannabis, um, so any extracted um, molecule from it or any part of the plant, is illegal under federal law. It's a Schedule One DEA medication saying there's no approved use. So basically that's where heroin lives and LSD and ecstasy, they're all Schedule One. So we can't use it clinically. Uh, the states have decided, based on states' rights issues, that we as states will approve it for not only medical use, but recreational use. And the way they've indemnified clinicians like myself or protected them from losing their license is essentially all we do as providers, and most of the states are set up this way, as we as providers just certify that the patients have a qualifying condition. Now, those qualifying conditions vary by state. We have 13 in Minnesota. Different states have different ones. And some of them have um, approval for depression and anxiety. We don't have depression and anxiety, for example. So it varies by state. And some states actually give their providers the opportunity to say, it might be helpful for this. I'm going to approve you for this. And basically, the state then subcontracts with companies who sell the, the product through dispensaries. So if I came to you and you were convinced that I had chronic pain or particularly if it was neuropathic, nerve-type pain, and and you said, okay, I'll give you a prescription, uh, where would I get it filled and what would it be? So uh, good point. So we would never prescribe it. Uh, We can't prescribe it because no pharmacy dispenses it. So I would certify you and say you have chronic pain. And then what would happen is you would get an email saying you're certified, and then at least in Minnesota, two weeks later, if you paid your processing fee, you would get a uh, essentially a card to go into the dispensary, and you would work with a pharmacist employed by the companies contracted with the states, and they would actually recommend products for you to use. When you came in, you said, the one thing I need to do is unseat the myth. So what myth do you want to set straight? So I think there's a lot of preconceived notions among the patients that come in, and they say, well, I don't want to smoke pot, and I don't want to do these things, and and the grandkids are laughing at me and these sorts of things. And, and, it, and it's a very different experience. And so I've tried to do two things. I, I try to not use the term marijuana. I try to use the term cannabis. Um, I think we need to le- legitimize it as a therapy. I need, we, we, need, we need more data, but I would legitimize it. And patients are worried about addiction. There's no, in, there's no data suggesting that, it, it, that the, at least the products that we are providing in a medicinal manner are addictive, They're, that patients will not become addicted to these. In fact, some of these molecules that we're giving them have actually been used to treat addiction, such as cannabidiol. Wow. Well, interesting. I, I guess um, we've come a long ways. So you're, you think, truly, for certain conditions, um, marijuana, well, you don't call it marijuana, but canna, can, can, cannabis, cannabis yes. is, is okay. And and seems to be effective. So, yes, the data is clear that in some conditions, medical cannabis is effective for those treatment of those conditions. All right. We've been talking about the use of medical marijuana with internal medicine specialist and addiction specialist, Dr. John Ebert. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Ebert. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.